I wanted to do um, some additional devotions based out of our Renovate series. Uh, certain things that I think need to be addressed when we're talking about having a well-cultivated, uh, well-kept heart. Um, one of those big issues that we face is the the power that disappointment has to knock us off course. Um, next week, we'll actually talk about what what causes the disappointment has to do with our expectations and understanding expectations helps us to to have a, a, a greater flexibility to manage and handle disappointments. But but this week I, w- I want to talk specifically about how we direct our thoughts when disappointments arise, how we how we guard our heart in an effective way, not a way to harden the heart. Because disappointment is something that, that actually affects you in terms of your brain chemistry. Uh, it, the brain research says that when a person is disappointment, the neurotransmitters fire in very, very specific ways. And it's, it, it's there uh, as an automatic kind of response to protect you. But depending on your emotional state, depending on, on the state of your beliefs and your thoughts, the range of disappointment can go from kind of an oh well resignation, this, this is the kind of thing that happens, to a this has destroyed my life kind of my life will never, you know, recover from this sort of uh, experience. And, and, and both of those uh, kind of extremes uh, can happen in any person, depending on the circumstances, again, depending on what our assumptions were, what our beliefs were, what our expectations were. Now, the problem with disappointment is that you can't, you can't just stay disappointed. Uh, disappointment is the twin emotions of frustration and sadness coming together in one, you know, in, in one psychological but also neurological uh, response. And what happens then is is having experienced that chemical reaction in your brain, then you have to emotionally respond to it, which means. You can't stay there. You have to shift. And um, on Sunday, I was talking about the shifts that we do when we are disappointed. They either can be, be they can be a process where we're becoming stronger, where we're becoming wiser, more aware, or all of us, our default settings are that we shift into self-protection, which means we close down our trust mechanism. We begin to trust less. We begin to hope for less. We, we don't want to risk. And that usually goes to having then difficulties in trusting God. But also, because we hate feeling weak, and for most of us, sadness feels like weakness. And so we want a power source. 
And for many of us, we go from frustration to, to anger. Um, it can also result in anxiety. It can result in depression. But none of those are helpful to us. None of those are effective. Again, it, the disappointment has to be dealt with because it is an incredibly limiting thing to go into negative emotions for self-protection. And oftentimes, if we are aware of things that make us feel like I will never be happy again, you know, I'll never trust again, I'll never let that happen to me again. Those kind of statements are revealing that we have certain idols. That though we may say with our mouth, we trust the Lord, though we may say with our mouth, we, there is no other God but our God, at the same time, a level of disappointment where I feel like my life is over, I feel like I'll never be happy again, is telling me I've invested my life, my emotions, my happiness in something or someone in whom it, it should not be invested. If, if my life can be over by something either being blocked or something not happening or someone doing to me what I didn't expect them to do, then there's, there's the issue of, of idolatry there. And so disappointment in and of itself is not sin. But disappointment not handled well, because there will always be a shift. Disappointment not handled well can be really, really dangerous to us. And my old mentor uh, in prayer, Armin Gesswine, who uh, was an amazing man of prayer. He was the man who led Billy Graham's prayer teams and prayer coordination. When Billy Graham got his famous start in L.A., Billy Graham was preaching in a tent of 10,000. Armin was across the street leading thousands in prayer for that that revival. So I, the last four years of his life, from the time he was 89 to 93, Lisa and I spent as much time as we could with him. And he had this to say. He, he would say that disappointment can easily become discouragement. And discouragement, though... In a way, it's, it's, it's not as deep as depression, but discouragement can linger so that everything coming into your life is coming through a filter of discouragement. And Armin used to say this, discouragement is a sin. It won't send you to hell, but it will make you feel like you are living there. Uh, it's kind of a pithy way of saying discouragement is not something you want to live in because it's... It, 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 it lingers. It's almost like it just is a squatter that then that then covers everything that's happening, even the good things. You can't really trust. You can't trust and give yourself to the good things because discouragement is there. And he used to say there are three rules regarding discouragement. He said, recognize it, refuse it, and replace it. So that's what we want to do. We want to disempower disappointment, but we want to replace discouragement. And so I, 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 I love to go to the book of Hebrews, but this passage in verse, in chapter 6, verses 11 through uh, 19 is so powerful for that. We want each one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope 
to the very end, so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. When God made a promise to Abraham, because he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently endured, obtained the promise. Humans, of course, swear by someone greater than themselves. And an oath given as confirmation puts an end to all dispute among them. In the same way, when God desired to show even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it by an oath. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible that God would prove false, we who have taken refuge might be strongly encouraged to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. One of the, one of the things that God has given to each of us is that you have, and it's, it's, you could say an ultimate type freedom of what you allow your mind to dwell on and what you require your mind to dwell on. So whether your, your mind is full of discouragement or if your mind is full of hope, you have decided based on whatever you deem to have weight or value in terms of your beliefs, in terms of your commitments, in terms of what you trust, you have decided where your mind will be directed. And either you have allowed discouragement or you have actually required your mind in a way to protect yourself by staying in a, in a, in a way of negative emotion, discouragement. Now, what is... What does the writer here in Hebrews say that we should, how we should direct our minds? He says, well, at the heart of all God's dealings with us is the issue of our inheritance. And it's an inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. So it's to direct our mind in such a way that we, we recognize, no matter, no matter what our life has to show for it, whatever past struggles we've had, whatever present sins that entangling us, whatever might be going on, it does not change that we are the beloved of the Father, the bride of Christ. We are people of the Spirit. This is who we are. And so the, the writer of Hebrews says, okay, here's what I want you to do. This is where I want you to require your mind to go. Realize, he says, the full assurance of hope to the very end. See, the reason sometimes that we slip from the this disappointment into discouragement, into depression, is we have not realized the full assurance of hope and we're not holding on to that hope to the very end. Uh, on social media, there are so many people who are talking about how they had this strong faith and how they invested so much into purity culture when they were teenagers and all this, and now they're you know, now they're talking about how bad all that was and everything and how how much freer now they feel that they've walked away from from their faith. And, and you know, they act like it's this big revelation. But what they're showing is their faith never was directed toward God. It was never directed toward Jesus himself. It was never directed toward 
They were sinners in need of a savior. It was directed towards something else, some reward that they expected, some way that life was supposed to go that they expected. I mean, to put your faith in anything other than the unchangeable hope and the unchangeable things of God is to always walk, have something to walk away from. If if I put my hope in, in someone else's promise, if I put my hope in, in someone who said, if you do this, then you'll get that. If I put my hope in those things, then my hope is in something changeable. It's not based on the eternal hope that is given in the scripture. And when I realize that, then I have to make a shift. And what's happening with with these folks who are doing their social media posts, these they're saying they made a shift. They went from disappointment to some kind of discouragement to unbelief. And they allowed that to happen because someone disappointed them. Something they expected didn't happen. It didn't go the way they thought. So their faith wasn't in the unchangeable and their hope was in things that could be changed. Because here's what the writer Hebrew says, through faith and patience, we inherit the promises. And so what many people are showing is they have faith, they, they had some kind of faith, but it was not accompanied with patience. And then the writer says this, if you, if you put your faith in the unchangeable promises of God, nature of God, the, the gospel itself, if you put your hope in that, you have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I, I, can't, I can never read this passage without thinking about my dad's anchor. We, were, uh, we, we lived in South Louisiana. I grew up uh, first there, and then we moved to South to the coast of Mississippi. And my dad was a, a fisherman. He loved to go fishing. And he had this little, we had this little boat, like 10-foot aluminum boat, light as could be. And uh, in the bayous and the, the rivers that we fished in, there was often a pretty strong current. And you would, you would find these spots that were good for fishing, and you'd drop the anchor. Well, we didn't have a real anchor. We had a tin can that uh, he had filled with cement and then, you know, attached uh, by a rope. And so we would drop this anchor and the current would be stronger than the anchor's ability to actually keep us in place. See, it was a, there was an anchor, but it wasn't sure and it wasn't steadfast. And what a lot of people have done is they, they've, you know, when you hear, oh, the church has let me down. Oh, you know... I prayed this prayer and it didn't happen, so this has let me down. Well, that's that's saying that you had a you had a very cheap anchor. You had a you didn't have a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. And many of us many of us find out that that's true. Um, there are situations in life that hit us, and and we're not prepared for it. There are situations that come that that are totally different than what we thought. My initial experience in ministry, my initial experience on the mission field showed that I did not have a sure and steadfast anchor for my soul. Um, the actions of colleagues, the actions of the mission itself, all of these things 
not only disappointed me, but led me into being angry, full of rage. Because I, I was trusting in people and I was trusting in my view of how people should be and they were letting me down. And, and this is why this passage that that First Peter and First Peter 3, 9, this is why this passage is so important for the soul. It says, not returning evil for evil. See, when, when people let us down, when, when circumstances let us down, it's so easy then to think, well, if that's the way it is, then I'm just going to, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Uh, sometimes when we see how bad other people are, we're like, well, I'm just going to be bad too. But Peter is saying here, all that is, is evil for evil. And then he says, not insult for insult. And I mean, doesn't it sometimes just be like a, a default setting? Someone insults me, I want a bigger insult of them. But what he what he's saying there is when that happens, when evil can so disrupt me that evil comes out of me towards that evil, or when I can... Uh, put myself back on a, on a level where someone else can take away my identity by insulting me, where someone can take away my sense of self-worth by insulting me. He's saying when that is happening, we're not living as people who are anchored. And instead, what Peter says, you were called for the very purpose. This is the anchor. You have called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This is the writer of Hebrews' point, this is the writer, in, this is Peter's point here, is that no matter what life throws at you, no matter what people throw at you, if you have the anchor that my purpose is to be an inheritor of the blessing, well, they're not the blessers, and this world's not the blesser. They're not the source. God is the source. And of course, the enemy's going to accuse you. And of course, the enemy's going to test and tempt you. And so what's coming out of you when evil is done to you, what's coming out of you when people do not value you, is something to be looked at and say, why does my soul get so cast down? Why is my heart so broken? What is this inflexibility in me? What is the rigidity in me that wants the world to be the way I want it to be and for people to be what I think they should be. And instead, most of us just, we get angry, we get discouraged, we get depressed, we get anxious. We are called to inherit. That's what it's saying. And there's a sense in which if you understand the idea of inherit is you have some now, but the greater portion is to come. One who is waiting on an inheritance doesn't have it all now, but has a patience that says, but it's coming, the fullness. And, and part of what I, I've always liked is, is the idea is the will is already in effect because when does the will take effect? It's when the person who made the will dies. And that's what the covenant is. That's what the New Testament, the new covenant is. It's God's will for you. And the one who enacted the will, Jesus has already died. So the, the benefits already belong to you. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment. You have, you have the very presence of God, the triune God right now, inhabiting and indwelling you. And so 
part of what we're called to do is to demonstrate that we are inheritors as we go through the different issues in our life. We are people of promise. That that should never, ever be something you have to, you, you know, you have to go, am I a people? No, I am a person of promise. You have a hope. The writer of Hebrews is saying you've got to seize that hope. And that hope is an inheritance. But it's also, you know, I like this thought from Graham Cook. It's a, it's a language in which we start communicating our confidence in the Father. It's a language we learn, we hear. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. The Holy Spirit communicates the very heart of the Father in such a powerful way that we're radically changed by the conversation and by the content of that conversation. I had a simple experience. Uh, I told it in one of the services on Sunday, but I had a simple experience where a few weeks ago, I was kind of wrestling with the message that I was to preach, and there were parts of it that I, I wanted to make sure I made it clear. And uh, and I was praying and, and, and uh, during the worship time, during the service, and all of a sudden I felt this hand on my shoulder. Well, I, I looked up to see who, who had put their hand on my shoulder during worship, but there was no one around me. I know that's it's kind of a strange thing, but I, I felt this hand on my shoulder and I felt a communication that was in my spirit. It was not a voice. It was, but it was a strong sense, a nudge, if you will, that said, you've got this. And what does that, you know, when your father or your coach or whatever it is is saying, you've got this, they put their hand on your shoulder. And it was my father putting his hand on my shoulder saying, you've got this. I mean, that's, that's the communication that is intimate and personal personal with the father to his sons and to his daughters. And then you see, as we experience that communication and we, we sense that he's speaking to us, we sense what the language of heaven is, what the rhythm of heaven is, then we start to communicate that to others. I've often had this experience where even I'm in a restaurant and I have a heavy sense that the person who's waiting on me has deep pain or deep struggle going on. And I, and, and I will feel a nudge from time to time and say, you're going through a hard time, aren't you? I just want you to know that the, the Father loves you and, and, and he, he told me to pray for you. And, and I have at times had a waiter or a waitress just break out crying. Because they, it meant so much to them that the father knew their struggle and that he spoke and communicated through me that they were not alone. Well, again, we go back to what, is the, what does the writer of Hebrews say? It says to inherit, we need two priceless things. And, and we actually receive these priceless things from God. We don't achieve them. We receive them. But but they are a part of being able to process our circumstances and disempower our disappointment. And those two things are faith and patience. Now, I think it's really important that we understand that both of these are a gift from God. Both of these are the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of you cooperating and not resisting the Spirit in the process. And and it's interesting because 
though these are gifts and they are fruit, they're only learned in a deep way. They're only learned through process. So process is the steps that the Father has designed that the Holy Spirit curriculum has for you to reach the objective of you having full capacity for hope. And for you to have full capacity for hope, you have to have to go through the process with faith, with patience. Now, again, faith is immediate. It is you right now saying, because God has promised it, it's already real to me even before I've seen it. But patience is recognizing that the fullness of what you're hoping for and the fulfillment of what you're hoping for is an eventuality. So you're holding on until. It's kind of like Tony Evans says, you believe that it's so, even though it's not yet so, and you'll believe till it is so, because God said so. And that, that really is the message of this passage of Hebrews, is you're believing it because God said so, and you're believing it till it is so. That's what patience comes in with faith. Now, obviously, all of us want instantaneous answers from the Lord. We want to receive in an instantaneous way. And in a sense, it's not that it's it's impossible for that to happen. There are two types of faith, or there are these two elements of faith. One is that it is a gift, and there are moments where you receive exactly the amount of faith that you need to receive the miracle that you need. And so there is a sense in which faith is always a gift to be received. There is a sense in, I believe, help, help thou my unbelief. I mean, that, that's a believing where you are and, and looking for the gift for more. But it's also a process. So it's a disciplined conf- confidence that must be learned. And so, you know, we can't go through life always hoping that we're going to have enough faith for the moment of trial. Instead, what we what we he wants from us is to grow our faith, to increase in it and to walk by it. See, I mean, that's why Armin's little saying is important. Recognize your discouragement, refuse it, replace it. What are you going to replace it with? Well, you replace it with faith. See, wherever discouragement is there, faith has, you, you have abandoned faith. And to abandon faith is to put yourself in a dangerous position. And there are times when circumstances are very intense and they last for seemingly a long time. Sometimes it feels like they last forever. And so what, how do we handle those? Well, this, there's a process that's really, really important for handling some of the more difficult issues in our life. And one of those is, is, is that we face sometimes our, our, our disappointments or our you know, unmet expectations, we face them in our emotions rather than our will. Now, that, this is a little bit complex, but it's worth understanding. Your will, the place where you make your choices, the place where you make your decisions, where you you have weighed the consequences or you have weighed the the the, the evidence or you've weighed the, the value of something, 
The will is the vehicle for faith to really attain and hold on to the will of God. But what happens is doubts and thoughts, they come and they assault our faith. They, they come and they go. As a matter of fact, I think it was Luther, but I'm not sure, who said the birds fly overhead, but we don't let them make nests in our hair. So thoughts come, temptations, accusations, deceptions come, and they produce feelings in us. And sometimes they are thoughts which are connected to circumstances that we're going through, and they produce feelings in us. Now, if we leave those feelings to themselves, those feelings that came from the thoughts that were temptations, accusations, deceptions, if we leave those unprocessed, they will eventually capture the will. You see, your will, that's your decision center, always has the ability to go back and, and, and look at your previous choices. And your will can, can, can stand up to these new thoughts or these, these lies that are coming up against your faith. You, the will can stand up and say, no, I will not change my faith. I will not change my source of hope. Yes, life isn't going exactly the way I want. People aren't acting the way I want them to act. But my hope is not in that. My hope is in the Lord. See, you see this in the Psalms a lot where he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Or, or one of my favorites is he, where the psalmist says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in the Lord. You See, this is, this is saying, in the past I have made a decision. And the decision is I will bless the Lord at all times. In the past, I've made a decision, a decision which I will not change in the present circumstances or even in my present pain. I will not change. Why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in the Lord. Psalmist said over and over again, faith with patience. Wait on the Lord. Wait patiently on the Lord. Or the one I like the best, I have set the Lord before me. I shall not be moved. I shall not be shaken. Why is that? Well, because the promise is secure. God does not lie. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. The issue then is always process. God's process, the path of God is always about increasing our confidence, enlarging our expectations, learning to stand in peace, being stretched in faith, being schooled in how to see God and how to hold on to him as the anchor, safe and secure in our soul. His word then is this anchor point to be attained. So, you know, I'm asking myself, I'm asking what's the gap between God's promise and the provision for you and your current situation? What is the process that God has designed so that instead of the gap becoming discouragement, becoming unbelief, anger, anxiety, depression, what is the path God has chosen for you to have greater confidence? Where are you seeing God? Where are you letting your mind dwell? See, the, the double-minded person cannot be trusted in anything. They can expect nothing from God, James says. And so what we need is we need to be people who hold on to faith, who accompany that faith with patience, and who have not hardened our heart, or even self-protected or have a self-salvation strategy for protecting our hearts, but rather who have capacity to seize the hope that is presented to us. May God bless you in this.